Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Coffee in a Convo podcast with your favorite duo here. My name is Jenna. And my name is Cameron. And this week, we have the setup for you guys. I am so, so, so excited about the guest we got on this week, um, Dr. Brockmeyer. You guys, she is um, an OB-GYN and just the most knowledgeable human I think I've ever sat down with in my whole life next to my dad. Um, But she answered all of our questions so beautifully and she's just so intelligent and just a real joy to be around too. So I'm really excited for you guys to be here and to listen in and Cameron really really got it how'd you even find her um I found her on Instagram I was like looking at different like business owners and different people like in Sioux Falls and I literally just found her I don't even know how I think I was like looking at what like another business followed and I found her I couldn't tell you who it was who was following her but yeah and then I was following her for a while and I was like wow she is so interesting yeah so full of knowledge and yeah we we tackled a bunch of different topics for you mm-hmm. guys. Um, we got into it talking everything women's health from pregnancy to hormones to sex to literally everything. Literally everything. <laughs> Nothing was off the table on this episode. Yep. And we got nitty gritty. And what's so funny is that you you guys know us. We're very open. We'll talk about anything. But it was so refreshing too to just sit down with a guest and just, just have it all out there. And she just ran with it mm-hmm. and was just like, oh yeah, this is totally normal. This is what I talk about every day. And just really get into the questions that I think a lot of people are scared to are scared to ask Mm -hmm, yeah and even scared to be like I am having this issue or like is this okay is this not okay a lot of things that are just I think unknown and like she even says like misinformation is out there yeah or just no information at all so yeah I'm really excited that we got her on really excited that she answered all our questions and um yeah with that you have nothing else to add I don't we just gotta jump into this yeah it's so good it's so good (laughs) can't wait Oh, I will say, wow, I have a quick thing to say. Um, if you guys have any young ears, this is probably not the time, just because we are talking yeah. everything with the woman's body, women's body, woman, women, whatever. And so, yeah, maybe send them somewhere else. Yeah. If you're a mom listening with your little kids running around, maybe wait or, you know, put an AirPod in, whatever you need to do. Yeah, and also, sorry, dudes. Yeah, you 12%, you 12%, you got away for next week. Sorry about it. It's just the rules. And, um... Yeah, with that, we're just going to jump in. We are so excited to have Kat Brockmeyer here today with us. Um, Do you just want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Absolutely. So um, I'm Kat Brockmeyer, and I am an OBGYN at Avera here in Sioux Falls. And um, I've been practicing for about five years. Uh, grew up in Sioux Falls and um, came home when I was ready to start my m- medical practice. So <laughs> that was awesome. And then, um, how many kids do you have now? I have four boys: um, nine, six, three, and five months. Okay, yes. you're a boy mom. Yes, total boy mom, and um, have been through kind of all the all the experiences in terms of pregnancy, prenatal care postpartum care of the work so okay awesome yeah yeah we have so many questions so we're probably just gonna dive right into this absolutely okay so we're just gonna go ahead and break this into categories because we had lots of different questions so we have it broken down into um general vaginal health pcos slash hormone health uh sex and pregnancy so you guys we are diving into it we were getting right into everything uh we have so many questions you guys had so many questions 
So our first question under the general vaginal health is, um, thoughts on douching, when is it necessarily slash is it never necessary and what products do we need to avoid? Okay, so um, do not douche. <laughs> That. I already knew the answer. So I already knew the answer to that too. But a lot of women don't. don't. Yes. Yeah. So those are three words to live by. Do not, not douche. Okay. So like file it away. I love that. And um, you're right. So many women, girls, adolescents, menopausal patients think that douching is the way to go. And I tell patients all the time that your vagina is like a self-cleaning oven. I've heard that. <laughs> it's true. Like yeah. it, it, it does its own cleansing. Okay. That is specifically what it is made to do. It makes lubrication. You have discharge to clean. Like all of that is normal. Okay. And douching, all that does is introduce, you know, chemical and product and things that aren't supposed to be in your mm-hmm. vagina there. Yeah. And that can um, just upset, like, the normal pH of the vagina. Mm -hmm. It can cause irritation. Some people have very, very sensitive vulvas and vaginas. And so, yep, so those those products can just make your tissue even more angry. So you do not need to douche. So anything that is labeled as, like, a feminine hygiene product, a douche, something to clean or give you a different scent, all of those things should be no-nos. Okay. Okay. Why are they on the market? Do you have any idea? Well, why not? Because we <laughs> women yeah. buy them and, and there is this like stigma about, you know, how you should smell, how mm. you should feel, what your discharge should be like. Okay. And everyone, the reality is everyone's is different. That's yeah. like, mm-hmm. we yeah. all have different eyes and noses and we all have different vaginas. Yes. And like, but it is an entire like marketing campaign okay. that wow. targets women, especially young women and adolescent women. And so no, no, no. Okay. That's super interesting. I will say we're getting really personal here. I had like chronic, I, mean, they should know. I had like chronic yeast infections. It was like bad. And I was trying not to do like antibiotics because I mean that can like kill your gut and all that stuff. Totally. So I was doing um I work with a like a functional medicine doctor yes and they had me do um it was like a probiotic powder and like i think it was hydrogen peroxide and water and then i kind of douched in a way like they yeah they gave me like like they told me what to do and everything and i had like a little like bulb and stuff but i know that that is like different and i they also said that i had to be taking like a bunch of i had to take like medicine on the side too, yeah. to make sure that but yeah it got rid of everything well that's they good i'm glad i'm glad i don't know what you think about that um, i don't know I, yeah it's hard sure. to say without knowing the like exact regimen yeah. and like what how it was recommended yeah. and prescribed and stuff but yeah. i i don't i don't recommend things often like yes. that yeah. so it was like a rare it was like a rare thing yeah. i've had it for like a couple of years and they had me do this and yeah it worked but i'm not trying to be doing that on the daily or <laughs> yeah and i um i see a lot of women um with chronic vaginitis so chronic bacterial vaginosis chronic yeast infections Mm -hmm. and um that's something that is exceedingly common in my practice so you're not alone okay the fact that you battle that um and it's not a one-size-fits-all in terms of treatment you kind of have to look at the patient look at their lifestyle look at what factors might be contributing to the to their infections Mm -hmm. and then figure out how to tailor an appropriate treatment sure okay Super interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. super interesting. Okay, so on to the next question. What are some symptoms that are frequently looked over where you would say you should go see a gynecologist? Yeah, so um, I think that most people think about seeing their gynecologist for a pap smear, right? Right. Or mm-hmm. when they're pregnant. 
but there are a lot of um, women's health issues and topics and concerns that we are well-versed in. So vaginitis being one of those, um, painful sex. I don't think people speak up enough about that. Mm -hmm. It feels uncomfortable to talk to someone about your sex life, about if intercourse is uncomfortable, if it hurts, um, if you're having issues with orgasm or lubrication, all of those kind of things. And I'm, I talk about all this. So this is, this is very like personal, but this is my job. So, um, I think that's something that a lot of people don't seek care for, but it it shouldn't be painful. So, and there are lots of ways to help a person who's suffering with painful sex. So maybe it is more of like, sometimes it's a psychological thing. Like you anticipate pain and then your body starts Mm. to feel pain more so kind of like placebo effect almost. yeah kind yeah. of okay. kind of or you've had a traumatic experience in the past and like you can't sure. get past that mm. or maybe your muscles are um so tight that you would benefit from physical therapy like mm. who knew you can do physical therapy to your vagina but yeah. you can and <laughs> a lot crazy. of patients benefit from it just like we train our our muscles and work mm. out our hips and knees and shoulders and elbows we can do the same um for vaginal health so I think painful intercourse is something, if that's a concern, you 100% should see a gynecologist about that. That is your go-to specialty. And then the other thing is painful periods. It's normal to have some mild discomfort with periods. We Mm -hmm. we all get cramps and, you know, want to take ibuprofen, use a heating Mm -hmm. pad. But if your periods are debilitating and in pairing with your ability to function on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Like I see girls who are like, I can't go to school or I miss yeah. work. And like, that's not normal. Right. Yeah. So that is something too, that definitely um, needs to be worked up by a gynecologist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned something in there with physical therapy for your vagina. And I didn't put this on there and I meant to go back in and add it, but um, Kegels. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> knows what Kegels are. Okay. Yeah. So I, the thing is I was talking to some girls at work and they're like pregnant and they had no idea what Kegels were. Yeah. And I'm like, I barely know what Kegels are, but like you're pregnant, you should know what Kegels are. What are Kegels exactly? <laughs> okay, so um, yes, it's true. I can ask someone to like do a Kegel for me when I'm examining them and all sorts of things happen. A lot of times it's <laughs> not, not, the right not the right thing. So um, it's, so it's like um, kind of pulling your vaginal muscles. Your vagina is made up of a ton of muscle and I'm pulling it kind of like up and in. Like you would almost feel like not kind of like you're going to stop a, a stri- like stream of urine okay. similar and pulling in. But a lot of people want to like squeeze their butt cheeks or mm-hmm. squeeze their butt tight. Mm-hmm. It's not a butt thing. It's like all inside. Okay. And you should be able to hold them for a while. Like, it, But it's, again, training a muscle. So initially mm-hmm. it's going to feel really weird even to hold it for a couple of seconds. But eventually you should be able to hold that, that contraction for, um, you know, 10, 20, 30 seconds at a time. Right. And you know, if you don't have like issues with prolapse or urine, which is like the bulging inside the vagina mm-hmm. when you've had babies and yeah. stuff, like it feels like things are falling out. I've seen a prolapsed cow yeah. before. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if you don't have those issues and you're not having incontinence issues, then you maybe don't need to do Kegels all the time. Right. But that is in essence what it is. Oh, so, okay. yeah. It's good to have it like actually like explained. Yeah. Explained. Yeah. It's good. Okay. Okay, so what are some of the most commonly asked questions from your patients? Oh, um, so uh, a lot of people want to talk about contraception. I mean, that's something that comes up all the time. So I do a lot of visits about that. Um, Lots of questions about um, preconception. So when I want to get pregnant, um, 
is this medication okay? What sure. should my partner and I do to try mm-hmm. to conceive? Mm-hmm. How long should I try before I come see you? Mm-hmm. Those type of things come up. Lots of questions around like lifestyle choices. So, you know, diets, mm-hmm. exercise. Um, it seems like those are kind of the like nitty gritty of yeah. day in and day out practice. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Super interesting. I The questions you were just saying, like I have those same questions like yeah we're gonna get we're gonna jump into that I think most women do I mean those are the things that are on our mind a lot and if you're Mm not having babies yet you're thinking about babies once you get into your 20s and like you know kind of envisioning what that might be like and if you're starting to try then you're starting to shift gears and you're worried about how long you're gonna try and so that's pretty typical yeah um Okay, so when would you recommend a young woman start seeing a gynecologist regularly? So I, there isn't a magic age that you should start. I think if you have concerns, then you should come to us. So if you're 14 and your periods suck you and you're not getting answers or um, not getting help from a family practice doctor or a pediatrician, mm-hmm. then it's very reasonable to see a gynecologist. I think it's scary because you think you're going to have to come and have this very invasive exam. And I see adolescents all the time and don't, don't do any sort of invasive exam. Mm-hmm. I can sit and visit with you and we can figure out how to manage your crappy periods oh, that's together. True. Yeah. So you don't, I, I think that that is a little bit of a, um, it's kind of, it is prohibitive to people coming, but, um, we can help a lot without having to do what we typically think of as going to the gynecologist. Okay. Um, definitely when you're sexually active and you need contraception or you need sexually transmitted infection screening, um, gynecologists go to for that. And then typically I say by age 21, um, that's when we're gonna start doing pap smears and screening for cervical cancer. So if you don't have your foot in the door before that, 21 is a good place to start. Oh, I was just we both took a breath to ask yeah. the question. Um, how often should you be going to get a pap smear? That's not every year, is it? No, it used okay. to be every year. Okay. And then the guidelines over the last five, ten years have really shifted to kind of a less is more approach. So oh, in okay. your twenties, um, we screen every three years if your pap smears are normal. Okay. So okay. the caveat is normal because okay. uh, we see so many abnormal pap smears, especially in young sexually active women, oh. because abnormal pap smears are linked to HPV virus. Okay. And HPV virus is very, very common. Like 80 some percent of sexually active people have been exposed to it. Wow. So if they're normal every three years in your 20s, and we screen more regularly because that's when we're probably more likely to pick up abnormals. And then as you get older into your 30s, 40s, 50s, we recommend screening every five years if they're mm. normal. Okay. But I think a lot of people confuse a pap smear with a pelvic exam. And okay. so a pap smear is when we actually place the speculum, like the metal speculum that goes in the vagina, and we take a little brush and we scrape sure. the cervix. And then someone's looking at the cells. It doesn't hurt. I saw your eyes. <laughs> uh, it's like a crampy discomfort. Have you but- had that? Jenna? Oh, getting to it. Okay. <laughs> so um, we scrape the cells and then we look at them under the microscope and we okay. say, are they normal cells or is there something abnormal and should we follow this up? Now, that is different from a pelvic exam, which you should have every year. A pelvic exam okay. is when I put my two fingers inside the vagina and then my other hand on top of your belly and I'm feeling your uterus and your ovaries and the tissue and the spaces around your organs. So those are different things. So you can come to the gynecologist and have a pelvic exam, but not be due for your pap smear. Okay. And so then also I recommend annual breast exams. So when you come in annually, once Mm -hmm. you get your foot in the door, you're going to have a pelvic exam and a breast exam. 
maybe a pap smear, maybe sexually transmitted infection screening, maybe some blood work. So we add, we kind of tailor it based on where you're at. So do you have the breast, um, what do you call it, breast exam? Yeah. For like girls our age too? Like I do. 20s? Yeah, yeah. I do. I was like, I've never had that. And I had oh. a pap smear and they've never like, they actually had feel and stuff. I oh yeah, she she took my yep. dress down and she like all over my boob and yeah. all over my armpit She's on both sides. That. Yeah, I start women in their 20s. That makes me kind of upset. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I always ask if they have breast concerns and want to review like, is there a family history of breast cancer? But um regardless if you say no family history i don't have any concerns then you're still going to get a breast exam for me we've gone we used to say like remember you guys are probably too young for this but i remember like they used to put out these pamphlets and you could like hang them on your um shower yeah, and it yeah, showed yeah. you like how to do your breast Actually, exam I have okay so like put your arm yeah. up and then you fill in your armpit yeah. and you feel around your breast and that was like doing your self breast exam so we've kind of gone away from saying you need to do a self breast exam every month and instead saying like you need to have general um breast self-awareness so sure. like know if something doesn't feel yeah. right know if you're putting on your bra and something hurts know if your skin is changing and bring yeah. those things to someone's attention but regardless of that I still do a breast exam annually okay. for a woman okay wow so I actually just went to my very first big girl physical <laughs> with a gynecologist so funny it was like yesterday and yeah, literally I just the literally just yesterday and I asked her, um, and she did my breast exam, and then I was like, and I, when I called the lady, I'm like, I'm supposed to, you know, I'm 22, I've been putting this off for a year, like, I'm supposed to get, like, the full, the full thing. Anyway, and I went in, and they, like, asked all the questions, whatever, and she was like, she was like, okay, so you've never been sexually active? I'm like, no. And she's like, okay, so, like, you haven't had intercourse, you haven't had, like, any sexual contact at all. I'm like, nope, nothing. Like, no one's been poking around my vagina except for myself. And she's like, okay, well, that being the case, your periods are normal, whatever. She's like, a lot of people wouldn't recommend this, but she's like, I don't want to be all invasive in your space when you're so low risk. And so she sent me away without, like, anything. And she said, come back to me next year. Okay, (laughs) so um, I'm glad she did the breast exam, and we're not going to name names, but I, um, I... there's a lot of data to say that you should do a pap smear at 21 regardless of sexual okay. activity. So that means a 16-year-old who is promiscuous and had se- several sexual partners, don't pap them because of that. And the 23-year-old who is not sexually active still warrants a pap. And that's why we come together okay. on age 21. And that's wow. when screening should start. So, wow. so you need to change your doctor. You are... You are definitely low risk. Like you probably have obviously never been exposed sexually to HPV or STIs, but I still would kind of start your screening because that's when it's recommended. Well, aren't aren't you checking for other things besides just that? Yeah. So, I mean, a good visual of the cervix, sometimes there's like polyps and and lesions and things there that have nothing to do with like your pap smear that we might see otherwise Mm -hmm. and feel, you know, some, some women don't, they're not sexually active, but they have fibroids or something in their uterus. And so Mm -hmm. I I learn all of that about you from your exam. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy that they sent you away. Which she she totally left it up to me. She's like, if you want me to do it, I will 100% do it. But also like, like, that's a very like, you know, personal space. And like the fact that no one's been down there yet. Like all this stuff. And she was was very nice about it. She left it completely up to me. And I'm like, I'm good for a year. (laughs) I I do think like having your first speculum exam and pelvic exam is is kind of disconcerting like it's it feels right. weird Which the, is the whole position is yeah. feel, is weird because 
you know, we have to put your legs up in stirrups mm-hmm. and we have to open your knees and it just, it feels a little icky kind of yeah. to start. I don't know. I, I get that. Um, it becomes much more routine the more you do it. Right, yeah. obviously. Um, and once you have babies and things like that. But um, right. I always just walk my patients through it. Like, this is what I'm going to do. These mm-hmm. are what my instruments look like first. Like, mm-hmm. this is, this is where this is going to go. This is how yeah. I open it. You're going to feel my touch on your thighs first. Like, please yeah. tell me if it hurts. Mm-hmm. Like, just to kind of clear the air and make yeah. sure they're comfortable at the exam. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. okay, moving into our next segment, PCOS slash hormone health. So our first question is, are there long-term effects of certain hormonal birth controls? And what is your thoughts on hormonal birth control? This is like my favorite question. Yeah, <laughs> this is a loaded question because yeah. there are lots of answers. So <laughs> I don't know if it's best to take it like, by type of birth control, or if you are more talking about birth control pills? I'm talking about probably, well, I don't know if I put this or you put this or we both put this, but I'd say like pills, any sort of hormonal birth control that's affecting your hormones, I guess. Okay, so um, most birth control, aside from, you know, condoms, barrier methods, um, and then like the non-hormonal IUD is hormonal. So, so, um, like, birth control pills are probably the most widely used yeah. contraception mm-hmm. and the one that most people think of when they hear the word birth control, right? Yeah. But okay. there are birth control pills that are made up of estrogen. The most common type are estrogen and progesterone. So they have two types of hormones with them. And then there are some birth control pills that just have progesterone. And then there's a thing called a Nuva ring, which instead of taking the pill, you put a little ring inside the vagina for three weeks at a time, and that gives you the estrogen and progesterone. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. there's things like Depo-Provera, which is getting an injection of yeah. progesterone or a Nexplanon, you've probably heard about, yep. about, it looks like the little toothpick that goes under the yep. skin in your arm. That's progesterone only. And then there's progesterone only IUDs. So there are is like a plethora (laughs) of things when you say birth control. So each of those has a unique set of kind of pros, cons, risks, benefits. So I think a lot of people um, think about like, is there a risk of cancer down the road if I use birth control pill? Um, And by and large, no. The the big one that has gotten a bad rap is, is there a risk of breast cancer with birth control use? Mm -hmm. It is like, very 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 negligible increase so not a lot unless you have like those genetic predispositions right. disposition to breast cancers and stuff and then actually um, birth control pills are very protective and, and women who have used them have lower risk of things like ovarian cancer and uterine cancer mm-hmm. um, but like general side effects of a birth control pill um a slight increase in blood pressure. So if you're a patient who has high blood pressure or you're on blood pressure meds, not the best option for you to be on a birth control pill. You okay. should visit about other issues. Okay. If you are a patient who smokes, birth control pills slightly increase the risk of heart disease and stroke. Okay. So so does smoking. So you put the two together, mm. not a good combination. Okay. So um, there are potential risks that are unique to each type um, mm-hmm. and that could have downstream like long-term health effects mm-hmm. but it's it, it's that's a that's like a really wide conversation so yeah. ask me specifics yeah yeah okay so specifically 
Can there be issues with like getting pregnant after being on the pill? No. Okay. No. Some <laughs> Who likes no, that? no. No. Some birth control pills will delay your return to fertility. Okay. Well, I'm just not pills. Sorry. Me. Some birth control methods. Pills do not do that. Okay. okay. So a pill basically kind of just makes your ovaries quiescent okay. the time you're on it, and then as soon as you're off it, they go back to their normal fertility. So okay. if you are on a pill from 20 to 35, yeah, you're gonna come out of it being having the fertility of a 35 year old, which is diminished compared to a 20 year old, but that's where you would be anyways. Right. Does that make yes. sense? Yeah. Yes. So no, but things like Depo-Provera, those are very, very high dose kind of potent birth control pills. And so it can take a long time for your body to recover back mm. to normal periods and normal cycles mm-hmm. and ovulation after being on those. So I don't like those for women that are like, I want to have a baby within the next six to 12 months because it can take that long to even get back Mm. to normal. Okay. Well, that's okay. But IUDs and birth control pills, as soon as they're out, you're back to normal. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Next one on depo can have a bit more of a delay. So I was going to ask this question, not on the podcast to make, because it was, it's kind of a personal question, but I'm just going to ask you. So I've been off the pill for like seven months. Yeah. Um, and I went off of it, not because I'm trying to have a baby. Um, my husband and I want to wait a couple of years, yeah. but, um, I went off of it because it's like, I've been on like three or four different ones and every time it's like, things will be going good for a year. And all of a sudden it's like, my body just stops listening to the pill and I'll just get my period. Like not what I'm supposed to be and yeah. like all this stuff. And finally, and I, I'm kind of a naturalist. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm going to try not like not doing totally. this. And I want to totally like get my hormones figured out. And I've been off of it for seven months and I haven't had a period. Okay. So what's wrong with me? Okay. That's a great question. And that needs more of a workup. Okay. I will say definitely. So, um, the first issue with sometimes continued use of a birth control pill it, it kind of shuts things down and it can thin the lining of the uterus so much that your periods will just go away. And then what will happen is your body's like, what in the world? And it'll do that weird breakthrough bleeding, like get a period whenever. Okay. Which is a nuisance. So when a patient has an experience like that, I say, we could try a different pill, which mm-hmm. you, it sounds like you've done. Or we can try like a little, a uh, little break from the pill and mm-hmm. see if that just resets things and then mm-hmm. resume yeah. or shift gears to another method altogether. But that's not entirely uncommon, especially okay. with prolonged use. Okay. Now, when you go off the pill, I do tell patients up to probably three to six months is pretty normal, but by that time you should be getting a period back. And if mm. you're not, that is called secondary amenorrhea, meaning no periods, but not like you never got a period because you got a yeah. period when you were 14 right. or 15, right? Yep. So yeah. Yeah. So that needs to be worked up and figure out if there's a hormonal imbalance sure. that could be causing it. Is yeah. there something going on inside the uterus that could be causing it? Okay. So yes, I would recommend talking to someone about okay, that. Okay, because I had like a t- I had a doctor back home when I was growing up, yeah. and I like Facebook messaged her because that's like how I talked to her. Sometimes. Yeah. And she said that it's not totally a normal, and that was at my six month mark. She's like, wait, like two more months, and yeah. if you still haven't got it, go see someone. But I recently started taking. I have to show it to you. It's not here with me it's a pill and it's called um baseline i don't know if you've heard of it um and actually someone else told me about it and it's like um for hormone like balance and it's like all natural things are supposed to help your hormones and there's like tons of reviews about like how people like they're like it like took away my period pain or it helps me regulate my period or it's even helping like women get pregnant who have like an imbalance so i'm like I'm going to try this. Yeah. It, so I've been, I haven't even been on it for a month and they say, I like emailed the company and they said it can take a couple months. So well, you'll have to keep me posted. Okay. I will. But I would say if with, if within like the nine month mark, you're still not yeah. cycling back to normal, I would get that. So then what's up. like, what are they going to do? 
So maybe some blood work. <laughs> might be some blood work. Might be a pelvic ultrasound. Okay. Sometimes we give you a medication to stimulate like a cycle again and okay. see if that will just kickstart things. So okay. there's lots of different things we have to consider. But this doesn't mean that I'm never having kids. Does not at all. Okay. Does not at all. Okay. okay. So along those same lines. Yes. What is the deal with birth control induced PCOS? Because that's like one of the four that I've researched. Tell me more. <laughs> okay, so the Blonde Files did, it's a podcast, yeah. and the Blonde Files did um, a whole episode on, like, PCOS, hormone health, whatever, and they went through all, like, the different kinds of, like, there's, like, um, adrenal fatigue PCOS, insulin-resistant PCOS, and then they talked about birth control-induced PCOS, and honestly, I don't have that. I have yeah. insulin-resistant PCOS, yeah. so I didn't remember all that much. Sure. But is that, like, a thing, or...? Um, I, that is not something I'm familiar with. Okay. So I kind of think about PCOS... Um, I, I, I tend to think it's more of a spectrum disorder. So, like, it's it's exceedingly common. Probably 15 to 20% of women. So, one in five have some wow. form of PCOS. It's yeah. very, very common. Um, and the thing about it is, it's like, some women have a little bit of PCOS. Some women have all the PCOS. Some mm-hmm. people land somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. So, some people have PCOS with, they have very few or never have periods, which mm-hmm. is one of the ways we diagnose PCOS. Some women have periods, but they have hirsutism, which is that male pattern hair growth that's very problematic for women right. with PCOS. That hair on your upper lip, your chin, um, acne, um, And so some people have more of that, but still have normal periods. And then some people have, um, you know, irregular periods, but no hirsutism. But if you looked at their ovaries with an ultrasound machine, they would have very classic polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. Yeah. And so it's really weird. And, And the way you present depends a lot on like the stage of life you're in. So, you know, um, there used to be this very stereotypical picture of like classic PCOS, like this very round, heavy person with like acne and Mm -hmm. male pattern hair. And like, that's not true. There are a lot of women who are very thin with PCOS and there are people who are average weight with PCOS and then there are obese people with PCOS. So, um, I don't, I don't tend to look at it in terms of those four subtypes that you talked about. The reality is PCOS is, a hormone imbalance. Yeah. And so it is, um, we all, all of us in this room have testosterone. We have estrogen, we have testosterone, we have progesterone. That's what our bodies make. But it is an imbalance where women with PCOS have more androgen production, which is testosterone, than they do compared to like female dominant um, hormones like estrogen. And that imbalance affects how your ovaries function. Mm-hmm. That imbalance is what causes all of that like male pattern, you know, more acne and, and sweat and hair growth and um, causes your periods to be irregular and infertility to be an issue. With that same hormone imbalance comes a lot of what we call metabolic syndrome for a lot of women with PCOS, which is um, abnormal triglycerides and cholesterol, Mm -hmm. high blood pressure, that central obesity, like carrying weight in your tummy, um, insulin resistance, huge, huge, huge. So it's um and like tailoring treatment for PCS really depends on 
how the patient's presenting, like, what are their biggest concerns? Mm -hmm. And then, like, what are their goals? Like, is it, are they struggling because they're getting a period every four months, but when they get it, it lasts three weeks and it's heavier than hell? Like, we got to address that issue. Or do they have PCOS that they went off their pill that had worked great for them forever, but now they're not doing their periods and they want to get pregnant? Like, how do we address that issue? So I always say, like, I just have to like get to the like the nuances of what's going on with the patient with PCOS right. to figure out how best to treat them because it's a lifelong disease. It's a chronic disease yep. like having asthma or sure. epilepsy or, you know, all yep. these things. And so you have to be prepared to manage it forever. And the mainstay of management is like lifestyle change. So yep. diet and exercise is huge. I see it all the time. Women who lose even five, 10% of their body weight will cycle regularly on their own yeah. wow. and their insulin resistance will improve. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard because that is a harder patient population to lose weight. It's not as easy as just like going to the gym and changing your diet. It doesn't work yeah. that way for women with PCOS. Like you really have to fine tune and figure out what works best for you. So some women it's, intermittent fasting some women it's like a macros based approach to dieting some women it's low carb high fat like a more ketogenic diet like right you kind of have to trial and error and figure out what works best for you but if you if you can lose a little bit of weight then that can make a huge difference in terms mm-hmm. of managing your pcos I feel so validated right now. That was a really <laughs> long-winded answer. No, so. it was so good, though. So informational. Yeah. That yes. was really good. Yeah, that was really that good. That was really good. And, and birth control pills are, like, the mainstay of treatment for PCOS. And because most a lot of women with PCOS have infrequent periods or, mm-hmm. or no periods, and mm-hmm. so it makes them cycle regularly. Right. And here's the problem. If you don't get periods, the lining of your uterus builds up and up and up and up, and then when oh. you get a period, it's rip-roaring terrible. Right, that's yeah. me. Or it can cause <laughs> precancerous changes over time if you oh, don't okay. shed that lining. Okay. So, And birth control pills also increase this fancy hormone called sex globulin binding hormone, And so that goes up in your body and that picks up all that extra testosterone. So women with PCOS who are on a birth control pill, their acne gets better, their hirsutism gets better. So it has, it has all these different ways of battling the problem with PCOS. That's very interesting. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Totally. Um, What are your thoughts? I know I creeped your Instagram very thoroughly. (laughs) And this might actually be one of the next questions and I might be um, jumping down a little bit. Oh, sure. What are your thoughts on um, spironolactone? Oh, yeah. So, um, well, it comes with side effects and I find that side effects are pretty limiting. I do have a handful of patients who use it. So that is um, like an anti-androgen medicine that we use. Um, It's like a... It, it helps take care of the hirsutism, those symptoms mm-hmm. of hair growth. And so if a patient's really bothered by that, I'm always willing for them to try. It's kind of the one that is the most widely spoken of right. and most widely known of. But, excuse me, it causes like, you know, some diarrhea, some nausea, some headaches, some dizziness, lightheadedness is something that I hear a lot about. And so if, if it if you can't take it and tolerate it, it's probably not worth it. I do right. have patients who take it and feel like it helps them a lot. And so, um, it's very reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I used to take it and yeah. now I don't anymore for all those very reasons. Yeah. 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 It's one of the, so metformin is another medication that, mm-hmm. um, women will be prescribed often with PCOS and I don't use it as a mainstay of treatment, but if you have any sort of insulin resistance, so 
you have an elevated A1C or you have an elevated fasting glucose test, or we've done a glucose tolerance test where we give you a load of sugar and we really see what your glucose is due to see what your insulin is doing. Mm -hmm. And there's any degree of insulin resistance, then metformin is a great medication to help combat that. But the problem with metformin is it also comes with a ton of side effects and they're often very like prohibitive to patients using it, especially GI upset. Like I, you know, patients like I couldn't stop with diarrhea. Like that's all I did. And Mm. who wants to do that? So, so sometimes it's better just to shift gears and try to work on the lifestyle changes to get there. Right. Um, and with that next question, a little bit of a selfish question, because like I said, I do have (laughs) PCOS. Um, what, in your opinion, is one or two things women can add to their everyday routines to help their hormone health? Yeah, um, so oh, that's a good question. I think maintaining a healthy body weight is huge. Our ovaries respond to that. Our hormones that um, come from our brain that stimulate our entire reproductive system respond to that. So well-balanced diet and good exercise routine is huge for hormone health. That's super. I mean, it's like bread and butter. I wish there was a magic pill or like a magic diet, but it's everyone has to find what works best for them. But like that, I can't get over that enough. And I know that's sometimes annoying for patients to hear, but like that is the basis to taking care of ourselves for all the issues that Mm -hmm. come up in life heart disease, lung disease, you know, dementia. Like, bone help all of that can be can go back to taking care of yourself and maintaining a healthy body weight yeah I think that's yeah that's really like good to hear too though because I feel like just seems like in the day we live in so many people like have like all these issues but they're not taking care of their bodies or they're not working out and they just want to go like get a pill and stuff like that so it's really good to hear you say that because I know like some people who are don't have an issue with prescribing someone else a pill. You know what I mean? They're not sure. telling them that, that that's actually what they need to be yeah, doing. And it's right. just like... It's an uncomfortable conversation mm-hmm. to have with patients sometimes, but that's my job. Yeah. Like, if right. you're coming in and you have prediabetes and you have high blood pressure, but you're also overweight, like, I know that if you lost weight, both of those things would right. go away. Yeah. And so right. it is my job to counsel you. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm going to treat those issues because I also have to take care of you as a patient, right. but I have to tell you about how you can improve these things. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. No, so that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So do you think issues like PCOS and endo- endometriosis, endometriosis oh, sure. um, are becoming more and more common or do you think women are just getting diagnosed more often than they used to? Um, I think it's probably a combination of things. I think women have really taken um, control of their health and we're like empowered and okay. we have social media and we have resources at our fingertips and we are saying... We're hearing someone's story and you're like, man, I have that story. Yeah. And so we're seeking care. So I think it, it it might be slightly more common. I mean, because, you know, PCOS is probably more common because we have more obese people than we did 30, sure. 40, 50 years ago. Right. So, um, but I also think we're just better at diagnosing it. So I think a lot of times like painful periods were chalked up to being painful periods. And now mm-hmm. we're saying, no that's not normal to miss work and miss school because of your period. Mm -hmm. It's not normal to not be able to have intercourse because it is so painful in one spot. Like when I hear those things from a patient, I go like, ding, ding, ding. Does this patient have endometriosis? Mm -hmm. Whereas in the past, someone might've been like, suck it up. You're fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So your period and sex hurts, you know, like now I think we're, we're saying no, like that's, that's not normal. Let's investigate. Let's figure out how, what we can do. So Maybe a combination of things. Yeah, okay. For sure, for sure. Um, 
Should women with PCOS slash endometriosis have gynecologist visits more often than just their annual physical? I think if your symptoms are well controlled, if you're happy where you're at, if you're not hurting, if your hormones feel good, getting regular periods, then no. But if you have issues that are not being addressed, if something changes, like, hey, I was doing great for 12 months, but and I just saw my gynecologist, but damn, the last three months have sucked, mm-hmm. you should see them more often. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and then what are some common misconceptions about hormone health? Um, gosh. Well, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. I think that they're, like we talked about earlier with, like, vaginal health and douching and mm-hmm. all those products. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who want to take advantage of a vulnerable population and send out a lot of misinformation. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is find a resource that's reliable and and make that your go-to for hormone health. Don't don't buy into some of the, you know, social media. There's a lot out there and a lot of it is total misinformation yeah. and mm-hmm. you can start following the wrong person and go down this like rabbit hole of like just getting lost in it and yeah. none of it's correct. That's so, so true. I would say, um, I don't know that there's like a lot of misconceptions, but I think there's a lot of misinformation. Okay. And so find the right resource. That would be my, that would be my advice. Okay. That's good. Yeah. All right. Moving on to, you know, the super fun portion of the podcast. (laughs) Moving on to our sex questions. All right. Um, what are some practices that women can be following to improve their sex lives? Um, first of all, I... I see women all day, obviously, and like, you know, 20 to 30 women a day, most days. And um, low libido, painful sex, those things are really common. So when I have a patient come to me and say that that's a concern, I the first thing I try to do is normalize it. Like, hey, you are not the first pace person in my door today who's talked to me about this. Like, this is a struggle for a lot of women. Mm-hmm. And so... I try to like take away the stigma and just listen. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're so busy. We're we're busy being moms. We're busy with careers. Like sometimes it's just not dedicating enough time yeah. to intimacy. And so carving out time for it, I think, is a, a, one of the best pieces of advice I give women. Um, communicating with your partner. So if there's something that doesn't feel good or something you'd rather they do differently, like talking about that. Um, if you're having really big issues, you know, or is there an issue with, you know, an underlying issue? Is there depression? Is Mm -hmm. there things like that, that might be contributing? How can we address those issues? Um, do you need to see a psychiatrist? Do you need to see a counselor together? Do you need to see a sex therapist? There's sex therapists in town who work with couples. So like, yeah, that's um, cool. I didn't know that. I think communicating is probably like the one piece of advice I would give to, you know, to women struggling there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's good. All right, this next question is hilarious. Um, okay, it's great, though. Uh, pull-out method. Many use it. When used correctly, how effective is it? What are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, so I wouldn't use it myself. Um, I wouldn't recommend. I wouldn't rely on it. Uh, the data would say it's about 80% effective, which is surprisingly high, but yeah. that means two out of ten times it's going to fail. Not really a risk I yeah. want to take. So there are better methods. <laughs> There are better methods. That being said, I know people who use it, so oh, that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, for okay. sure. Oh man. Um. All right. How does an IUD work? Slash. How is it inserted? What are your thoughts okay. on it? Which you kind of touched on a little bit, but yeah. like the actual. So I am a big proponent of IUDs because I think they take the onus off the patient, and sometimes like remembering to take a pill every day or put your ring in or coming to get your depot shot is inconvenient sure. and it's not entire t- 
entirely reliable unless you have a patient who is very good at it. So I do like it for that aspect. I also think we, IUDs are approved not only for birth control, but to treat heavy periods. So okay. a patient who has terribly heavy periods, long cycles, changing their tampon several you know times a day, yeah. every other hour, that picture, I think an IUD is a, is a great choice for them because it will treat that. It is. It's just like, are we talking... Is there hormonal IUDs yes. or only copper IUDs? So copper IUD okay. is non-hormonal and is not going to provide any benefit to your periods. But the hormonal IUDs will okay. get are used to treat heavy okay. periods. So okay. um, it's very effective too, like 99.8% effective. So, so they both only, or just the hormones? Both. both. So okay. they only fail 0.2% of the time. Okay. So really, really like... 100 times less than, or 1,000 times less than okay. the pull-out method. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, you did yes. math, yeah, but yeah, yeah. a lot less. Yes. So, um, so I think it's really great for that reason. It, I think there's this mis- misconception that it is incredibly painful to have one place, mm-hmm. and I place them in women. And there's also a misconception that you can't put them in women who haven't had babies. Those things are not true. Sorry. My something decor just, fell. Something just okay. fell off the wall. <laughs> Keep going. Um, so you, I put them in... I put them in adolescents with painful periods, heavy periods. I put them in young women who haven't started their family planning yet and haven't had children, and they tend to do just fine. It is literally about a five-minute procedure in oh, the wow. office. Wow. Now, IUD, your uterus has to be big enough to accommodate an IUD, and that can be, can be figured out very quickly with an exam in the office. Okay. And it is a minor procedure. Now, every procedure that a doctor does to you, whether it be you know suturing the cut on your arm or swabbing your nose for COVID, mm-hmm. has, comes with risk. So placing an IUD also has risk. Sure. Um, small risk of bleeding and infection. Um, small risk of the IUD going through the uterus. I'm sure there's mm. horror stories that, about that. That's what I've heard. And then that yeah. somebody like w- literally was having like contractions. Yeah. So the, the risk of it actually perforating is very low. One in a thousand is what the data oh, says. Really? That's what that's called going through the uterus. So it's very low. Now, most IUD users are very happy. I tell yeah. everyone when they're starting a new method of birth control or something to manage their periods that it's a trial. Same for pills, same for IUD, same for depo. So you have to give it like three to six months because okay. your body doesn't get it overnight. It's yeah. got to kind of, you got to work through the kinks a little bit. Okay. And then we see, because an IUD is for the long haul. Remember, they're good for five years and sure. the copper <laughs> one's good for 10 years. Wow. So that doesn't mean it can't come out sooner, but okay. um, like I use IUDs. I've had one between all of my babies and I just yeah. take it out when I'm ready to have my next baby. But for me, it's a really reliable method and I don't like having periods and I have heavy periods. So oh, okay. it's a really good one for me because I don't get a period with it. Yeah. Okay. Which is awesome. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And, so that's, and that's just that's the, the hormonal, hormonal one. one. The copper doesn't affect the period. Doesn't affect periods. But it does affect not getting pregnant, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. You got okay. it. Okay. Yeah. So okay. Okay. Um, okay, what are your thoughts on things like a vaginal ring or female condom? Um, I don't, I don't know a lot about them. Like, I don't have a lot of patients who use them. Okay, okay. you know, Fair like enough. female barrier methods. Um, yeah. I did look it up. It's about ninety percent effective. Okay, so might as well just use your pullout method. With yeah, that. yeah, <laughs> not that good. So okay. Um, and then next question. Does lube affect the pH of your vagina? Yes, it can. Um, lots of things can affect the pH of your vagina. Douching, putting yep. product in there, lubricants, semen, blood, oh. all of those things can change oh. the pH. But remember, your vagina cleans itself, so it will have, have its normal discharge. 
work itself out, do its self-cleaning oven thing, and you will get back to your normal pH. Mm, and this is my other question. Is that, like, is it just natural? Like, some women get really lubed up down there. Some women are a little drier. Yeah, I think that's pretty typical. So if you are on the drier side, and as you age, you make it drier because your estrogen drops off. Right. That's, how, that's what happens when we go through menopause. And if you don't have estrogen, your vagina responds to that by making less lubrication. So... It, it definitely evolves as you grow and age. Um, so, but if you are drier, use lube. Like, don't make it painful because you're dry. Mm-hmm. Don't risk getting micro tears in the vagina and things like that because you're dry. But if you're very lubricated, then you probably don't need right. lubricant, you mm-hmm. know? And everyone right. is a little bit different in that yeah. regard. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. I'm going to go back real fast because um, Jenna skipped a question oh, no. under... <laughs> Under the PCOS hormone health. Oh, sure. Um, what are some things women can do do post-menopause to help regulate their hormones? Mm, yeah. I thought that was a good question. So that is like, a good question. It is a Go really back. good question. And I get people all the time on my Instagram page being like, do more menopausal issues. Uh, help sure. us older women. Because yeah. oh. I tend to focus more on the younger demographic. So I got to yeah. quit, ne- quit neglecting them. But um, <laughs> so that is like exactly what your body's doing it's craving hormone the hormones dropping off i mean your your ovaries continue to make a very minute amount of estrogen um but it's it's a big enough drop that you're going to feel the effects of it so when you lose estrogen you get hot flashes you get night sweats you feel that brain fog you feel like your moods are doing this like this irritability cycle that's what most women with menopause will feel everyone weathers that storm differently like i literally will have a patient and be like yeah i get a hot flash every now and then i'm good and then I have women who are, like, beating down my door. Like, if I have another hot flash, I'm going to kill someone. So, like, <laughs> it's very weird. We all – it's the same way we all have different pain thresholds. Sure, and right. we all – like, it's just kind of depends on where you fall on, on the gamut. Now, if you are a person who is really suffering, the mainstay of treatment is hormone replacement. So, giving you estrogen, progesterone back. Okay. Now, that comes with some risk. And so, you have to have a very thorough conversation with your doctor and determine if you're willing to take on the risk um, and or if you're an acceptable candidate to take the risk. There are some women mm. who shouldn't be offered that. Yeah. So, it really comes to like a fine-tuned, tailored conversation. Okay. What do you think about those like – I'm just thinking of my mom – she won't mind me mentioning her on here, uh-huh. but um, she used like that, like there was like estrogen, like hand cream that yeah. was going around for a while. Like, do those things even do anything? Yeah, so those are more like what we call bioidentical hormones, and there's a lot of women who ascribe to that, and a lot of providers out there like who make that part of their practice. It's not something I do. I tend to stick to more traditional hormone replacement if a person's suffering. Fair enough. And then there's this other thing that she started taking to help with her hot flash. And I was just wondering if you know anything about yeah. it, like red clover. Oh, so there are some like over-the-counter things that are supposed to, like black cohosh is another one you'll hear about. And so data would say that those things have very little effect on actually like right. treating and improving treating it, symptoms. Yeah. But um, And some of those things come with icky side effects for patients. Yeah. So I kind of take those with a grain of salt too. Yeah. Yeah, that's good to know. All right. Now jumping back down to where we were in the questionnaire. Thanks for catching my slip up. Yes. Um, I'm glad we didn't miss that one. Um, For pregnancy, moving on. What is the best thing we can be doing for our health right now to help our fertility in the future? You guys know what I'm going to say, right? Maintain a healthy body weight. I, th- I thought, I figured you were going to say like health and working yeah. out and stuff. Like so that. like starting out in a normal body weight is huge going into pregnancy. Okay. When you start out overweight or obese, it comes 
like wrought with a lot of complications, pregnancy related complications, higher risk of diabetes in pregnancy, Mm -hmm. higher risk of miscarriage, higher risk of stillbirth, like all of these things, preterm labor, C-section, like the list goes on and on. So maximizing your health before you even decide to get pregnant is huge. Um, Don't smoke cigarettes. That is not good for you. Like that's a general health, Mm -hmm. healthy well-being thing. And that also can have very negative impacts on pregnancy. So that should be something, um, limit alcohol intake. You don't have to abstain from alcohol when you're trying to get pregnant. As soon as you get a positive pregnancy test, obviously. Okay. That's a good, yeah. Because I was talking with someone and she was like, yeah, I don't drink very much because we're trying to have a baby. No. Okay. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that that kind of takes the fun out of it. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't need to do that. But if you get a, I mean, if you're drinking excessively, that's one thing. But if you're going out and having wine with dinner and stuff, you do not need to stop doing that. Oh, okay. No. Okay. Sounds good. It's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Also, okay, so follow-up question from that question, specifically women with PCOS or endometriosis Mm -hmm. or other hormone issues, is there extra precautions, steps, practices we can be doing. So, um, kind of the same applies. Here's the deal. If you have PCOS and you don't cycle regularly or you have severe endometriosis, you probably are going to have some degree of infertility. So getting your foot in the door early to like establish what the timeline is going to be for you and how we are initially going to treat this if we do run into infertility. There are a lot of women with PCOS and endometriosis who's endometriosis who don't struggle with that but the vast majority have some degree of it and so I think just making sure you you kind of are prepared for that one mentally your partner's prepared for that and that you have a good relationship with someone who's going to help you right when that becomes a struggle would you say that this is me asking another Mm -hmm. um, selfish question but Cameron's got to ask you Mm -hmm. so I can ask (laughs) um so Pretty much, I got diagnosed when I was like 16, so yeah. a hot while ago, and um, I've I've been doing a lot of research and a lot of work to make sure that I can have babies in the future, yeah. and I get a regular period, so yeah. do you think that that's, pr- that's pretty that's good? That's good. Okay. So, I say, <laughs> I say yeah, um, regular periods, like, meaning not every 60 days, but every, you know, 26 to 40 days, pretty regular. And if mm-hmm. it's cyclic like that, that is a very good predictor of oh. ovulation. Lit. Yeah. Great. <laughs> so, yes. Lit. Yes. So you're, you're good. Okay. And then any tips or tricks for those trying to get pregnant? Um, so I wrote down, be patient. I think okay. most people think they're going to try the first month and knock it out of the park. And the reality is each month, only about 20% of people who are actually trying get pregnant. Okay. So it's it's like you, your chance is one in five every month. Okay. So you have to be patient and wait for the cumulative effect. Like okay. 80% of people will be pregnant by six months or something okay. like that. And then by, you know, nine to 12 months, 85, 90%. And then mm-hmm. the other 10, 15, 10 to 15% will struggle with infertility. Okay. So, but, so if you... If, you're, if you don't get it the first few months, we generally say you get 12 months to try if you are a normal, healthy person. If you're a PCOS patient and you don't get periods, don't give yourself 12 months. It's never going to work, right? Right. But if you're cycling regularly, I think 12 months is very reasonable. Yeah. So if you're older, um, if you're over 35, we say six months because your window to get pregnant has already narrowed that much because uh-huh. our fertility naturally declines as we get older. Sure. Right. Okay. Okay. And then I had another question. What was it? Oh, yeah. How many... like? I've heard people say that there's only so many days during the month that you actually like can get pregnant. Totally. Is that, so how many about is it? Okay. So it's, um, well you, you ovulate like 
once each okay. month, right? Okay, so, so, which is typically mid-cycle, but everyone ovulates a little bit differently. So that depends on the length of your cycle. So if you cycle every 28 days, you're probably going to ovulate on day 14. And the first day of your cycle is the first day you bleed. So that's how you track those days. Okay. If you have a 32-day cycle, so you get your period every 32 days, you're going to ovulate on day 18. Okay. So, like, timing-wise, and that's why those, like, apps that you can use yes. to track your periods are really helpful because they're putting all of that legwork into counting, adding, and subtracting there for you, and, so yeah. they're, and they're giving you kind of a window. Okay. And so what I say is during that fertile window, you should be having sex every other day because that's okay. going to cover basically, like, putting sperm there before you ovulate and getting sperm there after you ovulate and somehow, like, making it happen. Get the so a little the before, a little bit after. <laughs> because sperm can live in your reproductive tract for, like, five days. That's crazy. I've heard yes. that. Yes. And yes. eggs don't so live that long. Weird. So you want some there when the egg comes out. And in case you missed it before, you, like, cover your bases gotcha. afterward. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So that's so, why they say every other day. So how many um, – I've looked at those apps and just, like, can't remember. About how long is it that <clears> you are, like – they usually will say like you know they'll give you like a five day window. Yeah. So five. So there's like five days. So yeah. It's like pretty but, good chance. But you really are only ovulating. That is like a moment in time. But then the egg will uh, like be picked up by the tube, and then the sperm will be there. So there's probably a twelve oh, to twenty four hour window that oh, you can actually gotcha. fertilize. Oh, but you're only ovulating for like a really short yeah. amount of time. But then the sperm's ready to go. You got it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Wow, we're That's... learning so much. Oh, that is super cool. Okay. Um, but my app, it literally tells, I will get a notification. It'll be like, your yep. fertile window is coming up. Yeah. And it's like, and it'll be like, you're super fertile. And it's like, your fertile window is ending. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, fun. you cool. should, you should get, I have should get the app, but I yeah. don't have a period, so I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. Back to square wait, wait, one actually, for you. Wait, I actually have another question now about that. So am I even ovulating? Probably not. Okay. Probably There's not. no chance of me getting pregnant. Probably not. I wouldn't I rely on that. Right. Don't wouldn't rely on it. If you were like, I don't want to get but pregnant, I would not rely on But if we're combining it with the pullout method, yeah. you, might be right. <laughs> you might be okay. Because <laughs> like, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> okay. Oh, good grief. Your mom is going to... Just have a field day with this episode. Uh, okay. Um, what are your thoughts on natural family planning? The whole taking your temperature, yeah. like sustaining oh, from yeah. sex when mm-hmm. ovulating. I think it's great if it works for you. Like there are a lot of people to ascribe who ascribe to natural family planning and it works great for them. For yeah. they don't they don't want to use medications because of, you know, religious preferences mm-hmm. or they don't want to use medications because they've had terrible side effects from everything they've tried or they can't take them for some reason. And so um, there are a lot of people who use it, used, excuse me, well, like perfectly. I think the effectiveness is probably 75 to 80%. So it's not, okay. there, are, there are oopses and um, yes. that's kind of, that's what you take. But it, it's basically learning how you cycle, learning mm-hmm. when you are ovulatory. And if you want to prevent pregnancy, you abstain during that time. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. want to try to conceive, you're active during that time. Um, and so you, and, and some people look at like their cervical mucus to see really that changes as well, you I've ovulate. Heard, yeah, I've heard yeah. that. Like when you're ovulating, it goes from kind of like a thicker cervical mucus to this very thin, like they call it egg white cer- cervical mucus. Really? Like it would literally look like egg whites. It's very clear and it's very thin and stringy. Like that's a sign of ovulation. So mm-hmm. some people use that. Some people used to use like basal body temperatures that, which should increase a little bit. That's not as reliable, yeah. but, um, okay. Really knowing your cycle length should give you enough information if you're a regular period person to figure out when and when not to. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. I, like my, I know that my aunt did that and yeah. she has four kids and it worked for her. Like there was yeah. no oops. Well, actually the last one might be. Yeah. Oops. But <laughs> it, it, it works really 
people like I don't think yeah. like yeah yeah so a lot of people do do they it. do do it absolutely mm-hmm. okay I am terrified of tearing something okay I didn't put this Jenna oh, I put this yeah <laughs> I did I say it. I did say this Jenna says I'm terrified of tearing someday when I have a baby but I also am terrified yeah is there any way you can do anything you could do to prevent it from happening not really I, the re, here's the deal most people tear a little bit when they deliver a baby mm-hmm. vaginally mm-hmm. so um if you have an epidural you're probably gonna feel very little of it okay. so keep that in mind if you don't You've experienced the pain of childbirth and leading up to the tear, so I promise the tear is not going to be the worst part of it. Like, I've done babies. I've had my own babies with and without epidural. So, Oh, tell yeah. us. Tell I us will. That. I will. Okay. So, t- tearing is very common. Most okay. people have a small tear, and the vagina and the vulva is very forgiving. So, like, Aww. I tell people that within – like, by the time I see you back at six weeks, you wouldn't even know you had a tear. Really? So, unless you have something very extensive, and the risk of very extensive tears, like the ones that, like, affect – you know, how you have bowel movements later and things like that and painful sex and things mm-hmm. are very uncommon. Okay. They're I not was, common. Um, looking at some of, like, your Pictures. diagrams yeah. on your Instagram, and I, like, saw it, and I'm like, oh, dear. Yeah, it's um, it's just kind of comes with the process of having yeah. babies, and I would say, you know, it, 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 the, here's the other thing. It happens more often with the first baby. It, it happens less frequently with the oh. second and the third because someone's paved the way. That's what I tell patients. Oh. Like, your tissue naturally stretches and it just... Someone's paved yeah. the way. <laughs> Seriously, like you push a lot longer with the first one and then two, three, four come around and your body's like, I got this. Like I can oh push my just like muscle memory. Yes. That's yes. crazy. So, yeah. So it's good to know. Okay. Um, so for our new moms out there, what are some of your best tips and tricks that you maybe wish you didn't have to learn the hard way or just that every mom should know? Um, I would say... Give yourself grace. Like, it's such an adjustment to go from not being a mother to being a new mother. It's just, you take this little person home and you're like, whoa. What do I do? (laughs) What do I do? I remember my husband and I, like, didn't know we could put him down, so we just held him all the time. And then when we wanted to put him down to go to bed, we, like, didn't know we could leave the room, so we just sat next to his bassinet. Because we, like, don't know what to do. That's so funny. Yeah, so I would say... um, ask for help ask your friends who have come before you ask your family members like rely you know turn to people and so many people want to help new parents yeah and like whether it be give them a break to while they hold the baby so you can go shower or run an right. errand like take people up on that for yeah. sure mm-hmm. um to, and give yourself grace that's good that's really good okay and then what are some tips and tricks for those who are currently pregnant oh um <laughs> Eat a well-balanced diet and exercise. <laughs> That's like my standard. Um, I definitely do think that if you exer- if you come into pregnancy exercising and you exercise throughout, I just feel like you have a much better pregnancy. It's healthier. Your labor is generally um, better and your bounce back postpartum is too. So that's huge. Um, take your prenatal vitamin. Um, if it's your first baby, enjoy some quality time with your spouse before you have your baby. Like, Oh boy. Yes. <laughs> Cause something's about to come in and wreck it. Yeah. Well, I mean, not no, wreck it, it just but shifts. Like the focus yeah. just shifts. So yeah. like, you know, and just enjoy it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's truly amazing what our bodies are doing and, mm-hmm. um, just relish in that, like soak it up. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, personally, what has been the hardest part of any of your four pregnancies? Okay. So my first, um, well, all of my pregnancies fortunately have been really good. Like I generally, generally had very healthy pregnancies. So I feel blessed for that. I've had two miscarriages too. 
So I've actually had six pregnancies and I have four babies. Wow. So, and I tell patients that because I see people distraught and crying and it breaks me my heart every time I diagnose one, but I want them to also see that like, it's common. Yeah. Your, your own doctor has been through this and yeah. I've, I've managed miscarriages on my own and I've had surgery for miscarriages. And so I feel like I can counsel patients about mm-hmm. that and kind of be a, a, a resource that's actually familiar with what yeah. they're going through. So I'm very candid about that with patients. Um, so those sucked. They really take a toll on you. Um, but my pregnancies made up for all of that obviously so and I had really healthy pregnancies my deliveries I had all vaginal deliveries so I feel really great there I mean c-sections are great too there's no shame in having a c-section lots of babies are born by c-section I do one almost every week and it's a birthday party and something to be celebrated either way (laughs) and there there's like we do them both so but I have my babies vaginally and I had epidurals for three of them, and number two, I didn't. And um, just because I think I, I was a resident, I kind of wanted to know what it was going to be like. And I had, like, labor and delivery nurses who were like, you can do it. And so I was like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and um, it was hard, but it's I'm in awe of women who labor unmedicated because really? it is incredibly painful, but there are people who make it look like it's a walk in a the walk park. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I can't like, believe- it's incredible to see them. It's fascinating. And they blow me away every time well it's so cool that you you have so much firsthand experience yeah too yeah yeah you know even as you as you said you know you've gone through a couple of miscarriages yourself and just and the fact that you've just been able you can speak into everything firsthand and I yeah. think that's like really incredible you yeah. haven't just done the research and read the books and done the classes and yada oh, yada yada sure. but nope you've you've been exactly where they've been sitting before which is like why I chose this specialty because I remember when I was learning about it and on my clinical rotations doing it I just felt like I connected with it like yeah. I I loved my my own mentors and stuff who had that relationship with patients I could just see it was so meaningful and I, I feel like my own providers who have delivered my babies, who are now my friends and, and partners and stuff, have just been so instrumental and, like, mm-hmm. the biggest part of my life. Yeah. And so I want to have that with patients. Yeah. I hope my patients feel that way about me. Like, yeah. that's – it's incredible. That's I get awesome. to be a part of, like, seriously, one of the biggest yeah. moments of people's lives. Yeah. That's so true. When I deliver so babies. Cool. Yeah. Very, you know, whether it's their first or their fifth, it's always a magical moment. Mm-hmm. And my, my field does come with a lot of, you know, sadness and upset, like miscarriages and pregnancy mm-hmm. loss and things like that. But for the most part, it's really happy medicine. Awesome. So it fills my cup. So how often do you say like people aren't doing, are doing it unmedicated on purpose? Like not like that. Actually a lot. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. It's actually a lot. I would say, especially in the Midwest, it feels like a lot of women, they're just hardcore and oh. they do it beautifully. So oh, wow. I would say it's probably 20 to 30% without okay. an epidural. Okay. I would say mm-hmm. more, more get epidurals than don't. Okay. Um, and but there are some who do it flawlessly, and it's incredible. How you just cannot? Even. It's incredible. My mom Imagine. did all hers yeah, about it totally. because she had to. Yeah, she's like, I didn't have an option. Yeah, that's crazy that you had the option and you didn't. Like, yeah, do I just yeah. And it, you guys, it was it was a little bit horrific for me. I mean, like, the next I'll be two, then honest, like it was. It was, in, I mean, my husband delivered him. That was intentional. Wait, what? I was a resident and he wanted to do it. And so they were like, sure, we'll help him. But then I didn't have an epidural. And but I Wait, didn't... your husband is not a doctor. No, he's, he's, a, business... he's a business person. <laughs> so, but he, I think we all were like, yeah, that's fine. We'll help him. And so, 
But I didn't have an epidural. And so then when, like, the moment came, I was, like, a crazy person. Like, oh, my God. So, like, on the movies when you see him, like, totally screaming. screaming. Yeah, yeah, at my poor husband who was, like, trying to deliver our baby. And, like, so it was. And doing be- this, like, sweet thing and you just turn into a yeah. monster. It became very dramatic and somewhat oh. traumatic. But, honestly, like, look, even looking back on that birth experience, it, it's, like, a story now that I get to tell. And it brings a smile to my face. That, yeah, so. that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here's a question that a listener sent in. She says, I'm switching to a midwife this time around for number three. Will my OB be mad? No, we will not be mad. So <laughs> I tell patients, like, I, I get patients who come to me who have seen a partner before or seen a midwife before or seen a family practice doctor, and I get people who leave me to go to someone else. And here's the deal. Like, you have to go to whomever feels right for you. Like, it has to be a fit. It has to be someone you trust. It has to be someone you can confide in. It has to be someone that you feel like has your best interest in mind, is, is you know, going to take the best care of you possible and your baby. So, no, not at all. Okay. Okay, and this is... Oh, go ahead. No. Oh, I was going to say, I have another question that literally just came to mind. And I've heard so many people tell me this. But once again, it's like nobody who was like educated. So, I want to know your opinion. They say everyone... People are telling me that you shouldn't be giving birth laying on your back, but be doing it on all fours. Um, Tell me more. About yeah. That. So most people give birth on their back, okay. but um, and and that again, if you have an epidural, it's very hard. Your legs are dead weight, so oh. it's very hard to birth oh. in other positions. Oh. So a lot of women birth on their back with their legs up, like what you see in the movies, because they have an epidural. They have to. Oh, but okay. women who don't have an epidural, I'm happy to deliver their baby in whatever position is most really? comfortable for them. Are if, you just like, you do you. Not you're, on you're the dying. toilet or something, because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> it gets really hard to catch a baby that way. But like, if you want to be on all fours, or you want to be on your side, or you even want to stand up and push the baby down, like I'm comfortable with that. And then it can that help prevent tearing? Because I've heard people say that too. You know, a little bit. Like, again, if you're going to tear, you're probably going to tear. Here's the best way to prevent tearing. So, um, some people say like a little bit of perineal massage. So when you're pushing, like having your doctor kind of stretching the tissue too, like before the baby's head actually stretches Mm -hmm. it. And then sometimes warm compresses, like putting a warm washcloth during like the pushing stage is a little bit helpful. The biggest thing is controlling how fast the baby delivers. So like you literally like and usually with your first baby, it's pretty easy to control because they don't just fly out. Remember I said you have to push a while, yeah. right? So, like, we can control it. But sometimes if you don't have an epidural and it hurts like hell, you're going to push, like... Oh, and so, like, and okay. so getting that head, and I tell patients all the time, I'm going to make you push really, really hard until the head's about to deliver, and then I'm going to have you back off, and it's going to suck, but we are going to literally inch the head out, like, inch by oh. inch by inch, because then the tissue gets to naturally stretch, stretch around the head. So that is the best way to prevent tears. But again, first baby, okay. full-term baby, seven, okay. eight-pound baby, you're probably going to have a tear, okay. and it's okay. Okay, sounds good. Um, along the lines <laughs> of just uncomfortable things, are hemorrhoids inevitable? Um, not everyone, but they're very common in pregnancy, for sure, for sure. Especially, like, um, as you get farther along, you have more pressure. You, constipation is one of the issues that we get when we're pregnant. So if you're already a constipated person, expect that to get worse. Like, mm. so, And then you get the pressure from having a baby in your pelvis and then you do all that pushing and so sometimes people get them before they deliver sometimes people get them afterwards the good news is they're most 
often highly treatable with, right. you know, medications mm-hmm. and stool softeners and things like that. Do we, you might have already said this. Did you tear with your four babies? Yeah, I tore with the first one, um, like a normal, what we call second degree tear. Okay. And then my second one, I had a very small tear. And with three and four, I didn't tear. You didn't? Mm-mm. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And you... I had eight pound babies. Like all my babies were seven and a half oh, to wow. eight pounds. So they're good size yeah. boys. And did you notice like that your recovery was easier when you did it? Yeah, there? I mean, I definitely think that. Well, I also pushed for an hour with the first one and like the last couple I pushed twice so like uh, you wow. use all those muscles so much more for yeah. an hour to push so you feel kind of like a train ran you over the next day yeah but like by the third and fourth baby I pushed very little I didn't have tears so I felt a lot better and is that just because it's easier because it was yeah. your third and fourth okay totally okay yeah okay yeah so you kind of um maybe just answer this a little bit but who was what was your easiest pregnancy like um, like start <laughs> I meant not not easy pregnancy, maybe easiest birth, let's say. So I would say um, Luke, my last one, was probably the easiest. Yeah. I mean, I had a really nice labor. I got an epidural. I was very comfortable. <laughs> and then they're like, time to push. And I pushed one. She's smiling <laughs> like she was on a vacation. Yeah. Like, it was so, so easy. <laughs> yeah. And then I had a beautiful baby in my arms and he nursed right away. And so, wow, and he's still perfect. like a dream baby. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. Okay. I have to tell this story because it's really funny. So my cousin, she's had one baby. And she was terrified to have her baby, so when they give her, they gave her the epidural, and I guess like they'll ask you, you, you know this, we don't know this, they'll ask you like if you can feel anything. Yeah. And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, and she couldn't feel anything <laughs> because she wanted more medicine. <laughs> like oh yeah and so she's because you shouldn't do that because you should be able to feel the pressure so you know when to push and stuff yeah but she did that oh that's but funny she was still fine like everything was fine but she's like it was a breeze yeah oh there are gosh. some women who get very dense epidurals and they don't feel a thing oh, like God. and then there's that. some that <laughs> then you don't know when to push there's some that feel like it takes away the contraction pain but you're still gonna feel the pressure that's probably more common so when it okay. comes time to pushing you're still feeling like the push, which does help you focus where to push. Because okay. pushing, honestly, like, you don't get it. Like, it takes a while to figure that out if you haven't done it yeah, before. That yeah, that's what my sister, one of my sisters said that, like, she did, like, it took her a while to, yeah. like, get the rhythm of it. Almost. Totally. And when you have to push and, totally. like, all that People want to, like, pull their butt up in the air and squeeze their butt muscles. And, again, it's, like, you got to relax all of that and push out. Like, it's it's very... It's, it's like a learned thing. And when we're pushing with a patient that's never delivered before, we anticipate that there's going to be a learning curve. Yeah. Okay. Wow. This is another really like, crazy question, which I probably could just Google. But, um, like, do you just, like, pee and all that stuff at the same time? Yeah, usually. Okay. I mean, think. You're bearing down. Right. right. So, pooping is totally normal. And I literally, I I, you'll hear the nurses say this, like, push like you're pooping. Oh, okay. So a lot of patients poop. They do. Okay. It's very common. Okay. And then obviously you're bearing down too. And so when you like bear down, you're going to empty your bladder Ever. a little okay. too. Now, okay. some patients have a catheter in. So like their bladder's already, when we, when we take it out to push, it's very empty. So you might not see a lot of urine coming out, sure. but sometimes their bladder's okay. very full. They don't have an epidural, so they didn't have a catheter. So yeah, they pee and poop. Okay. 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 See, that is why I do not want husband down south. He's going to be up by my head holding my hand. Yeah, that's a mixed, like, bag. Like, some guys want to see it all. Yeah, they and, want to. And they're, they, it's complete, doesn't phase them. Yeah. You know, it's pretty incredible to see. I think until you, like, really get to witness it, you, it you seems grosser it, yeah. than it is. And it really is incredible to right, see yeah. it. Right, right. It's like, it's and I have a lot of patients who use a mirror to help guide their pushing. So they're watching really? it happen, too. Whoa. Yeah. So, and then there's, there's other guys and patients who are like, nope, you stay up here. Like, we're not yeah. going to go there. And so, to each their own. 
interesting. Yeah. All right, and then to wrap things up, which I bet we can even guess what the answer to this is going to be. Um, <laughs> if you could only give one piece of advice <laughs> to a woman about taking care of her overall health, what would it be? Um, I would. It's actually not going to be about maintaining your healthy body. <laughs> that is really important. But I would say, um, just be kind to yourself. You know, mm, like we all come from different walks of life, and we got to stop comparing ourselves to each other. And you know, find what makes you happy. Find yeah. a provider that fills your cup. Find a person that fills your cup. Don't don't um, get too bogged down and social media and all of those things that can have a negative influence on yep. you and mm-hmm. just be kind to yourself. It's good. Yeah. It's really, really good. Yeah. All right. Well, do you want to tell them where they can find you? Yes. Okay. So I, um, well, if you want to see me as a patient, I oh, work yes. on the <laughs> west side of Sioux Falls at Avera, um, the Family Health Center at 28th and Marion. And um, I also have an Instagram page called SD Mom Doc that I would love people to follow along with. I try to put out um, re- resourceful content and do a lot of Q and A's so people can just like hit me up with whatever's on their mind. <laughs> and I don't give a lot of specific medical, medical advice, but I try to kind of tailor it and keep it general. Yeah. So, and it seems like people really love that yeah. segment that I do and think yeah. it's really fun. So I'm going to continue to do that. And I do a lot of live interviews with other providers. So oh. I did one recently with an anesthesiologist talking all about epidurals. Oh, okay. And I've done cool. one with a pelvic floor physical therapist to talk about wow. how physical therapy can oh, help your vagina. Funny. So like, yeah. What made yeah. you want to start the Instagram page? So, um, I mean, I like to educate. That's a passion of mine. Yeah. I, I love counseling patients. Like that's one of my favorite things to do is sit down and talk like this about yeah. things that are on their brain. Yeah. I love teaching med students, so, like, that's something that really fills my cup professionally, so I figured there wasn't anyone in our area doing it, yeah. and so I was like, I like social media, too. I, I turn to it. Yeah. I spend a lot of time there. I know right. that there is an entire demographic of women who, like, that is where they're getting their information, uh-huh. so yeah. why would I not put out content that is, you know, not misinformation? Mm-hmm. It's it's sound, um, it's sounded in, like, good evidence-based medicine so okay yeah that's awesome I love that we will go ahead and link her Instagram in the show notes and of course you guys know we'll be posting on our Instagram all about it all week so make sure you're catching up with that and thank you so much did you have did you have anything else to add I didn't cut you off if there's anything else this was so fun yeah Yeah. okay awesome thank you for having me Yes. yes of course and with that we will be here again next week for another episode of coffee and a convo podcast